Today I'm looking once again at Genesis as we've been studying this book. I'm going to read the exact same text I did last Sunday. We're not plowing any new ground as far as text goes. I want to apply the text we opened up a bit last week to an important aspect of the subject of man as God's greatest work in this world. It's a subject that some of you might find a little unusual for Sunday morning, but it's one I'll tell you that if there's no other audience than our children and young people who are in public schools and are subjected to a contrary theory about man, subjected to that theory relentlessly, if they only gain something this morning, then I'm satisfied God's Word will have had some profit. Listen as I read once again Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and then also verse 7 from chapter 2. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And verse 7 adds a very important element that we studied last time. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. This is God's Word. Father, help us to understand it well, believe it is true, and stand upon it against all the wrecks and imaginations of human truth that might come against it, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Today we opened our worship singing the hymn number 53 in the hymn book, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of Creation. I chose that hymn deliberately. First of all, you always choose a hymn because it's appropriate to the praise of God and the service. But I also chose it because of a particular and interesting twist behind the story of the words of that hymn. Most of you, I would say, probably never glance at the fine print below every hymn where you can see on one side the person or persons who are responsible for the words and on the other side something about the origin of the music that it is played to. Well, if you had looked uh, below hymn 53, you would have seen a name. The name is of a German Christian man, Joachim Neander. He lived in the 17th century, and Joachim Neander was a Lutheran pastor who was gifted to write poetry, to meditate, and, and create many inspiring verses. I believe he published several books of verse and he also was responsible for some hymns, most notably this one that we sang, or at least the words of it. Well, it seems that the story of Joachim Neander is rather unique in that he liked to go for walks on a daily basis, and he would, he would go out, I'll make the worst pun in the world, Neander would meander, and he would go out afield from his parish and, and walk in nature, in the woods, and he had a place that he particularly liked. It was a river gorge near Dusseldorf, about 10 miles 
from Dusseldorf, Germany. And he served this pastorate for so long and took those walks through that gorge for so many years that people saw him there and they associated that gorge with him. And it, as these things happened, it became called Neander's Valley. Now, in German, that's Neander Tall. Neander's Tall, Neander's Valley. Well, it seems that about 175 years later, long after Joachim Neander was with the Lord, there were some workmen who were opening a cave in Neander's Valley, not far from Dusseldorf in Germany, and they happened upon some bone fragments, some parts of a skull, a leg bone, some other bones that clearly to them appeared to be human. And they took those bones and put them in the hands of a local physician who consulted a university scientist. And as these things go, the bones were studied. And the scientists were fairly excited and puzzled because they said these are definitely have the pattern of being human bones. And yet they're unique. There are very great differences about them from any bones that we would know of modern man. And so you can understand the interesting story that Neanderthal, or Neanderthal man, so-called, was named for this Lutheran pastor who wrote his hymns and wandered in that particular valley in Germany almost two centuries before these bones were discovered. Well, more on that in a minute. As we continue studying Genesis, I said last time that we would take a second opportunity to look at the uniqueness of mankind as the capstone of God's great work of creating living things in his creation. Last time we considered Adam, the first true human, as verse 27 uses the word God and seems to emphasize that God created him, meaning a break, meaning something new being brought into being that is not simply of a continuous line with the animals that had been created earlier. Also, we saw this marvelous and mysterious consultation, if you want to call it that, within the triune person of God as the Lord said, let us make man in our image. We read in our call to worship this morning from Psalm 8, Lord, you have made man a little lower than the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. That image of God is so important that man alone bears. I tried to sketch last time a little bit of what that involves. Awareness of God or spirituality, uh, reasoning, complex thinking in an abstract manner that animals are not capable of, a moral conscience, language, artistic expression of beauty. And, And that's only a partial list. It's a big subject of all the ways in which we differ from the animal kingdom. And yet we know too well that our willful sin has marred and obscured that image of God for every single man or woman so that there are times when humanity, or at least individual men or women, seem to act in a more bestial way almost than some of the animals when anything godlike about us is almost impossible to see. And we are reminded that that image of God is seen perfectly only one time in one man out of all history, Jesus Christ. 
in all the rest of us, the image is fallen and broken and, and barely glimpsed at times and yet still there. And so we find God undertaking a great act of redemption to restore what we have so grievously damaged. Only by faith in Jesus Christ is that image of God, that wonderful uniqueness about us, being restored, and it will be restored fully when we are glorified at God's right hand. Now, I'm saying that what I'm going to talk about today is perhaps largely for the sake of children and young people who get hammered, in their secular schools at least, with the evolutionary hypothesis of the origin of man. Man is only a creature. He may be the smartest creature, but he's just a creature. He's really just dust. They would deny, chapter 2, verse 7, that the breath of God, this image of God, his uniqueness comes upon us as in no other creature. And I believe children and young people and even college-age students and and graduate students in science end up very confused. How do we stand on what the Bible says when we're being told all the time that there were other supposed predecessors of human beings? What can Christianity and the Bible say about early forms of, let's use the, the slang term, cavemen? Maybe a more scientific word is the word hominid those who are touted to be our ancestors. Well, the Bible has a thesis that is rather plain. And young people, you do not need to fear, no matter how aggressively the teaching is ever expressed to you, you do not need to fear that there is harder scientific evidence on the other side of the coin than upon your belief in God as a creator of man as being utterly unique. Man did not diverge from lower animals. Apes and humans did exist in the past as they exist today, as similar but separate kinds or species. And Adam, we believe, was the first true historical human made in the image of God. I'd like to look at some things about this today. And I'm going to spend most of our time simply applying the text. As I said, I'm really not exploring necessarily new meaning in what we opened last time, but a different application. As I ask, in light of Genesis 1 and 2, what shall we make of so-called Stone Age men? How do these creatures fit? Well, there are many to whom it seems like it must be an embarrassment that we believe what we do. They say, oh, you Christians, you have this mythological story about God you know, magically creating a man. We, we know it happened. Well, science can tell us how it happened. And what's wrong with you? Why can't you, you ignorant people, get your mind straight? Well, people assume somehow that it is an unshakable truth that there was a long chain of our ancestors, hominids, stretching back in the earth's record of bones, maybe for several million years or more. However, that is not an established fact at all. The evolution of man is a theory. It's a theory authored by people who rather desperately want it to be true. And they cling desperately to it and enforce it with a kind of vehemence that would make you think there's great proof on their side when there is not. A couple weeks ago, I differentiated the use of the term microevolution and macroevolution. I mentioned that again. 
Microevolution simply being the change that happens within a species. My father was five foot seven and wore, I think, a size six or seven shoe. I'm nearly six feet tall and wear a size 10 shoe, and all my sons are nearly six feet tall, and possibly their sons will be taller. That's microevolution, change within a species. That happens. There's no argument about it. It's macroevolution that we have the problem with. The idea that one species somehow through gradual change and mutation can actually move into and morph into another species. That is an unproven theory. And fossils backing it up are not there for any animal species, let alone for man. Now, if we were talking about good science, good science based on the use of empirical evidence and the scientific method, I would say to you that the whole idea of man evolving from a lower creature is something that would have been abandoned a long time ago. You would assume that there must be, since it is persistently maintained, there must be an abundance of of wonderful evidence that shows how it happened. But there isn't. The reverse is true. What we have is a theory, and that theory tends to overrule the classification of every kind of fossil or bone that's ever found. And they say, oh, well, our theory says this bone has to be this, and so it is. The evolution of man is actually based on a philosophy called naturalism, which is opposed to the Bible's teaching of supernaturalistic creation. And the evidence is so fragmentary, it's fragmentary to the point of being non-existent in any clear way. Not all the so-called fossil bones that, that we are told belong to men from millions or hundreds of thousands of years ago did belong to men, not true men in the biblical sense. You know, we should be looking for evidence that would tell us of transitional forms. That's the biggest problem for all macroevolution. Where's, where are the transitions from what we know this form was like in this species to what we know this species over here is like. We should be able to see the gradations. We don't. They're not there. We have every right to demand that kind of proof, but the missing link or links are definitely still missing. Creationists stand on rather solid ground when we say that no creature prior to Adam possessed the full range of qualities that would identify God's image in humanity. The use of language, the evidence of abstract thinking, spiritual consciousness, all these other things. Yes, there were apparently upright, walking animals preceding us who, in the biologist term, probably belonged to a similar genus as man. That's a larger category, but not the same species. And isn't it wonderful how Genesis 1 keeps insisting that God created things after their kinds, giving us that strong sense that there were identity categories already at the moment of creation. The evolutionary theorists would claim that Neanderthal is one of their best uh, candidates for being some kind of key length. The the bones of Neanderthal have been found uh, in somewhat in abundance uh, not only in Europe, and since their first discovery in 1856 in the, in the Neander Valley, but all over different parts of Europe and into the Middle East, and I believe even in Africa. And the theory, the idea is, the, the, the ages range by different speculations, but it seems that the idea is that Neanderthals 
bones date somewhere between as far back perhaps as 50,000 to 20,000 years ago. Now, these Stone Age creatures do appear to have had some rather advanced characteristics. They conducted hunts for food. Oh, you say, only men do that. Really? I've watched nature films that show lions and hyenas working in great, precise organization as they hunt and multiple animals work to bring down a single animal. Even whales. I went on a whale watch one time off New England and was instructed on how several whales will actually sort of herd a school of fish together so that they can collectively open their giant mouths and take them in. Animals hunt together for food. One of the things that gives a little pause, perhaps, is the evidence that Neanderthal buried their dead. Now, we're not aware of any other animals doing that. That indeed is a somewhat advanced characteristic. And they used some kinds of fairly crude stone tools. They might have had a stone in hand to smash something or used a sharpened one to cut something. Yes, indeed, those would be advanced animals that would do that. But there's great dispute over the fact of whether or not Neanderthal even had language. And it would seem to me as I read that the predominant thought is that that's unproven, that they even had language to speak to one another. How do we prove that kind of thing? I can't get into the technicalities of it. But it does seem to be a pretty safe conclusion that Neanderthal, while rather advanced for an animal, was more ape-like than he was human-like in his behavior. It seems possible, in fact probable, that Neanderthal coexisted with another rather famous strain of early man who probably actually was man. Cro-Magnon, they're called. Living perhaps no more than 25,000 years ago, their onset would appear to overlap with the demise of Neanderthal. And there are all kinds of imaginative films made about, you know, the idea of the sort of brutish Neanderthals and the more advanced Cro-Magnons interacting. We don't know that they interacted, but that's imagination anyway. The more culturally advanced Cro-Magnon survived. And we would believe that it is entirely probable and even logical that the best thesis we can make about them is that these were indeed sons of Adam who wandered somewhere up into Europe and various far-flung places out of their origins as sons of Adam beginning in the Middle East. You know, for many years I subscribed to the National Geographic magazine. I used to keep them. You know those, I don't know, how many many of you have huge, you don't have to raise your hand, but you have huge stacks of National Geographic's in your basement, right? You feel like you shouldn't throw these magazines away. They're so beautiful. The photography's so great. And then you get a 30-year collection, and you think, oh, I bet they're worth a lot of money. And you find out that 10 people on your street have the same collection, and nobody really wants them. I love National Geographic. Wonderful pictorial displays of history and nature. But you know what? And I guess this is kind of a commercial thing I probably shouldn't be doing. But I really don't like the magazine anymore, and I stopped subscribing for one reason a number of years ago. And my wife can testify to the times when that magazine would come with the spread in it of some new finding that proved the great discovery of of advancement in early man and his evolution. And I would read that and just grind my teeth at the way this, this reputedly scientific magazine 
would swallow hook, line, and sinker the whole thesis of the evolutionary origin of man and, and just fawn over the latest new discovery that came along. I, I finally couldn't stand it. I said, don't renew it. I won't have it anymore for that one reason. If you go back in National Geographic and other similar magazines pages a few decades, you may remember the names of Lewis and Mary Leakey, a husband and wife team of archaeologists who worked primarily in Africa. I believe it was in the 1960s that the Leakeys came forward with what was supposed to be the greatest find of of that time. Uh, Not a whole skeleton, but some fragments, a, a jawbone fragment and a couple other fragments of bone that they posited were from an early ancestor of ours, about three feet tall, whom they named Lucy. And you may, by the way, the, the Beatles song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, was playing when, on the radio when they found it. That's why it was named Lucy. Anyway, Lucy was supposed to be it. Oh, Geographic said, this is it. This is the wonderful find. The missing link is here. Well, you know what? They didn't publicize it as widely when their almost as famous son, Richard Leakey, 20 years later, rather decisively concluded from his own studies that Lucy, his parents' great find, was an extinct ape, not man-like at all. We avoid the publicity that doesn't say what we want it to say. The evolution of man from animals is a theory that really grasps at straws for support. And there have even been outright forgeries along this line. You may have heard of Piltdown Man turned out to be something that was planted, absolutely a fake. The whole scientific community was greatly embarrassed because they had all exalted this as a great find and found out it was nothing. What evolutionists do with so-called early man, you know, reminds me of a story. You've maybe heard a version of this in some other context. But a story is told about a man who would go around most of the time and whistle the national anthem everywhere he went, walk down the sidewalk, whistling the national anthem, did this continuously. Finally, his friend said, Bob, why are you always whistling the Star-Spangled Banner? And Bob said, why? Because it keeps the elephants away. And his friends wondered, you know, is this guy cracking up? He said, Bob, there are no elephants within 500 miles of here. And Bob said, you see, it works, doesn't it? That's exactly the way the theory of evolution deals with the so-called evidence that it tries to bring forth about early man. You you take the theory and you run with it no matter what. And you make every possible fragment try to look like it fits the theory. Even if the universe, depending on your view of the length of creation days that we talked about a few weeks ago, if you believe, as some do, that the planet Earth is millions of years old, you still are forced by the biblical text to see Adam and Eve as our ancestors appearing quite recently, now recently in relative terms, on the earth within a historical window of probably not more than 20,000 at the very outside 25,000 years ago. More people would say more like 15 or 10,000 years. Now many Bible scholars who love the word of God do believe in an old earth, millions of years old. John Stott, a great British Bible scholar, James Boyce, the late 
scholar in Philadelphia. These men loved the Word of God, but they believed the created universe was very old. Stott said this. He put it all in a short paragraph. He wrote, and to say, quote, Various kinds of hominids with simple human-like characteristics did indeed precede Adam. We might even call them Homo erectus. They walked upright. They may have made cave drawings. It seems they buried their dead. But they were not Homo sapiens. And Stott said, if I may coin a phrase, this, of course, is not a scientific word, but Stott said, I want to coin the word to say Adam was the original Homo divinus, the first one made fully in God's image. He was specially created, as Genesis reports. Now, here's, here's just a tantalizing fact to end this section with before I go to a few conclusions. If Adam indeed was created fewer than 20,000 years ago, between 20 and 10,000 years ago, as would seem to be a very reasonable assumption, and, and by the way, even the genealogies of Scripture, we can't pin those genealogies down to give ourselves an exact date because sometimes, you know, this one begat this one means three generations, and they mentioned the father or the great-grandfather and his great-grandson instead of father and son. But regardless of how the genealogies work out, they do seem to fit an outside measure of somewhere not more than 20,000 years for Adam's appearance. Here's a fascinating thing. Secular anthropologists speak about what, it, what they call the Neolithic Revolution, the New Stone Age. Neolithic means new stone, new stone revolution. It was like a great leap forward for human archaeology. All of a sudden, it seemed, as they study artifacts and graves and all these things that we have, there was a a tremendous explosion of human culture about 20 to 10,000 years ago. Basketry, pottery, very advanced tools and weapons, farming, domesticated animals, Evidence of music, writing. It was like, wow, you know, just everything just advanced astronomically in a sudden way. And the scientists dealing with their evolutionary hypothesis say, how is it that all this development just happened so amazingly, so suddenly within a rather short span of time? Well, the Bible has a one-word answer. His name is Adam. And the Neolithic Revolution problem for modern science fits the onset of Adam as God's special creation with all these wonderful gifts at his disposal rather perfectly. Now, I move on today to mention a few conclusions that we might draw from some of this material. And there, each of these is not related to the other, but I think they are conclusions we ought to think about. Conclusions from the utter uniqueness of man created in God's image. And one is this. Biblical truth and science that is conducted objectively and properly need not be in conflict. We think the science and the Bible are somehow enemies that are always clashing. Folks, when science is done according to the scientific method and really leaning on evidence and not the pseudoscience of the theory of human macroevolution... The Bible is not in conflict with the methodologies of science. In fact, they produce wonderful, complementary things for us to even give God great praise for. Charles Darwin had an agenda. 
He accomplished a lot of his agenda. He accomplished an act of historic salesmanship by convincing fellow scientists to study the world as if God did not exist. And if, you're, if that's a plank in your scientific determination, that plank is going to determine a great deal about where you go and the conclusions you reach. Secondly, an obvious conclusion, a broad general thing that leads to much later on in the Bible is that since human life descended from Adam and bears the divine image, the presence of the Spirit of God, human life must be valued above that of any lower animal. We're going to learn next in Genesis as we go on here, I will go on, and see God giving Adam the charter or the charge to be the caretaker of creation, to rule over the lower animals. That does not give us a charge to abuse life, to trample on it, to be cruel and to be unfeeling in the way other life forms are treated. But it does say that human life is prized above all other life because God cherished us first and foremost in the unique way he made us. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, every material thing he could possibly get, and lose his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, Jesus was saying that part of the eternal, the Spirit of God, which marks you and dwells upon you, is the the most precious thing you have more precious than any material accomplishment or or possession you could ever take hold of. The imprint of the eternal God in your soul is your greatest possession. Now, Darwinism and all of its following ideas have no base for morality, no base for any special value of humans, and so we end up being no more valuable than plankton or hummingbirds or anteaters. Why are we any different if we came from the same root as they? And indeed, the theories of of Darwin that went into the social realm, we talk about social Darwinism, and you may know if you study these things in history, that led to theories of socialism and communism which devalued the individual across the board and said a person is nothing special. It dehumanized men and women and caused great stress and terror in the development of history. Now, alongside this, if we have this special value, until somebody with an absolute certainty of scientific judgment and knowledge can come along and pinpoint the exact moment in the development of the human embryo when suddenly we are human, but we were not human the day before, we are left with the only safe, reasonable conclusion being this, that we must value human life from the moment of its conception unless we can identify some other moment when we suddenly become this cherished human being. You know, are you going to say that in that delivery room when you when the little infant draws its first gasp and cries out, ah, now it's a human. It wasn't one 15 minutes ago. That's not a safe conclusion. That's a very risky, an unhealthy confused conclusion. 
And if we would take the safe conclusion to say that God forms us for himself beginning at conception, and by the way, the Scripture says he knew us even before that, then you know, of course, that we're going to look for and cherish and value that unborn child as a wonder of God, every bit as much as any individual walking on this earth today. Thirdly, this, when we think of the image of God granted to the first Adam and all his descendants, we know something, at least, of why Jesus Christ, the second Adam, was willing to come and take on himself a human body like ours, and come to die in our place. Romans 5, verse 12 tells us that sin entered the world through the disobedience of one man, Adam, and spiritual death spread out from that act of disobedience as the consequence to all men and women made in God's image, and we all became sinners. But the passage goes on, Romans 5, 18 goes on and declares that by the act of the second Adam, Jesus... By his one act of righteousness in offering himself perfect and unstained in the sinner's place, the Scripture says justification with God comes to all who believe. What a wonder. You see, this image of God in man has to do with all this. It has to do with the cross. Jesus came in a real sense to rescue and restore the broken image of God in sinful humanity. And 1 Corinthians 15, 49 is speaking to Christians when it says, just as we have borne the image of the man from dust, Adam, so shall we bear the image of the man from above, Christ. It was for human beings that God sent his son to come and restore the glory of what he originally made us to be. Now, I close with some words from a sermon of C.S. Lewis. You may very well have heard these words before. Lewis wrote as the conclusion of a sermon called The Weight of Glory. The sermon was about the weight of God's glory dwelling upon human beings. And here's what he said at the end. It is a serious thing to live in a worldwide society of potential gods and goddesses. You must remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you meet today may, in his eternal state, become a shining creature whom you will be strongly tempted to worship, or else that same person may become a horror and a corruption such as you would meet now only in your worst nightmare. And Lewis said, The conclusion of this is, there is no such thing as an ordinary person. There are only human beings in whom God's image is still not completely erased as long as we are on this side of the grave. Badly marred, defaced, damaged, vandalized, yes, but not erased. There are no ordinary people. We human beings are invested with the splendor of God. And Jesus Christ offered himself on the cross and rose from the dead so that his own unspeakable grandeur may be fully and wonderfully restored even in you.
and in me. Thanks be to God. Our Father, let us keep following these truths, foundational truths. You've done a wonderful thing in making man. Why you would continue to be interested in us when we turn from you as we did, we cannot say. But we can only praise your grace for your Son, our Savior, who came to restore that image that was lost. We look to him in thanksgiving and ask your grace upon us to have faith in him. Amen.